Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we're joined by Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, whose pandemic predictions have come true since the beginning of the crisis. We could have another variant in three or four months from now that could emerge that could easily evade the immune protection of what we have right now in our population or not. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter with Michael Osterholm on Conversations on Healthcare. In December, our next guest was one of the first to describe the predicted impact of the Omicron variant as a viral blizzard. He said then that we could see millions of Americans infected with this variant. Uh, the blizzard has indeed arrived and so have more questions and worries. Dr. Michael Osterholm is the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, which is tracking and analyzing this rapidly evolving pandemic. Well, it's good to see you again, Dr. Osterholm. Welcome. Thank you. It's, it's good to be with you. I yeah. appreciate uh, the opportunity. And tell us what the latest data on Omicron is and what's your take on it. Well, as uh, I described earlier, and you noted uh, that I thought this would be a viral blizzard, I really referred to that in two different perspectives. One is just the type of transmission you would see. If you look at the course of the COVID pandemic over the last two years, we've had these regional surges that have come up and down, uh, some lasting longer, some more in short uh, time periods, uh, but never did we see an entire country or did we see an entire area of the world impacted. And in fact, if you look at the WHO numbers for global cases, it would kind of cycle between about 2.5 million cases a week to 5 million cases a week and then back down to 2.5. This one's very different. Everybody is in the soup at the same time. It doesn't matter if you're in the northern or southern hemispheres. It doesn't matter whether you're in a rural or an urban area of the country. And the only thing that's really different, like a true snow blizzard, is that it hits some areas first and then hit other areas later. And so unbearing from the blizzard is somewhat slower in some areas than others. And that's exactly what's happening right now. In the United States, all 50 states are, and the District of Columbia are in the soup. However, those states first impacted, particularly the Northeast, are now beginning to see the peak number of cases occur and the numbers start to drop. The challenge we're gonna have is if we follow what has happened in South Africa and use that as somewhat of a benchmark, if you look at what's happened with Omicron there, the numbers went up very quickly. We all are aware of that peak. And then it started to come down quickly. And then people kind of forgot about, well, it's over. Well, it's not. Right now, the tail of cases in South Africa is still from an incident standpoint, 25 times higher than it was before Omicron hit. So what we're not quite certain of is once the big peak occurs and it starts to come down, what will that tail look like? And I think that's going to be relevant to everyone in the United States. Well, Dr. Osterholm, you, you paint a great almost visual picture of the whole map lighting up simultaneously. In fact, I was looking at one of the maps online today, and that's what it looks like. And one of the consequences of that is we can't really help other regions very much as we did uh, maybe in that first wave in terms of moving resources around, in particular healthcare resources. And I know this is something you're very concerned about with uh, healthcare workers, uh, particularly acute care, just being overwhelmed and stretched so thin. What are you uh, seeing and what are you concerned about in terms of standards of care and access slipping? Uh, is that happening? What can we do as the whole country lives through this phase? Well, as you just really laid out very nicely, Margaret, the challenge we have is that, in fact, the whole country is in the soup at the same time. There aren't ways that we can take 
and move assets or resources from one region to another. And in fact, even when we take National Guard unit individuals from our communities and put them into the hospitals and long-term care facilities, not that they have great medical skills, but we're taking them out of other critical jobs in, the, in their community. And so we are seeing right now no excess ability to move people from one region of the country to another for health care. So basically, what was already a very tenuous situation in maintaining adequate staffing, we're now hanging on by the skin of our teeth. Uh, we have seen in a number of areas uh, 20 to 25 percent absenteeism because of infected healthcare workers. Remember, these are incredible vaccines. They're remarkable, but they're not perfect. And one of the things that's happening is that people who have been fully vaccinated with their booster are still getting infected. It's a mild illness. They're not being hospitalized, but they can't work. And so that's been a challenge that we're seeing. And if you follow the news media, you can see story after story after story about regions imploring people, please try not to get infected because right now we're being overrun in our, in our ERs, in our hospital beds. In addition, we have to be mindful of what the impact is with supply chains. If you look at the number of big box pharmacies just in this past weekend that were closed because they had no one to work in there, We've had pharmacies shut down completely. We've had those that have stayed open say that it's taking three to five days to fill prescriptions, oxygen bottles, et cetera. So there's been a real hit on the healthcare system from multiple levels, not just personnel, but by far personnel themselves are the key issue. And let me just close with one number, I think, that really helps put that into perspective. You know, we have celebrated the fact that the DOD has put forward a thousand healthcare workers, uh, trained doctors, nurses, and technicians to go into our communities. That's great. But right now we estimate that upwards of 2 million healthcare workers are off the job because of infection. That DOD number doesn't do much to help make up for the loss of the healthcare workers that are currently infected. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, uh, sort of to add to that laundry list of challenges, or certainly what are we gonna do with our schools uh, you've just written that it's time to acknowledge reality and that many of the schools will likely have to close because of Omicron. Obviously, the president's not there. Secretary uh, Cardona's not there. It, it doesn't seem that the country's there. What's the matter with a taking a wait-and-see approach on virtual schooling? Well, you know, let's just uh, come back to what I call a common-sense moment. You know, it's just reality. The challenge is, is that right now, this is not about not wanting kids in school. This is not about the idea that's just COVID. But when you have 35, 40% of your teaching staff, your support staff, and your bus drivers out with COVID, how can you safely hold school? And this is just a reality. It's not a judgment of whether we should or shouldn't have school. Would we close schools if we were about to have a category five hurricane? You bet, would anybody complain? No. If there was a regular blizzard, a real blizzard, 35 inches of snow and 40 mile an hour winds, would anybody complain about schools being closed? No. So what I've argued for over the last couple of weeks is just some common sense to say, look at this surge is gonna last only three or four more weeks likely. What we've got to do is get through. And if you think you're going to open your school safely with such a reduced staffing level, that's a mistake. And this shouldn't be a political point where under no condition will we consider closing schools. And I've heard from many superintendents and teachers who feel like they're being punished for closing school. And the superintendent says, how do I do that with 35% of my staff out? And so I think this is one of those examples where ideologically people made decisions before they ever had the data to understand what that decision was all about. 
The kids in Minnesota were uh, walking out today. The high school kids uh, walked out of school because of the virus. Yeah, some of them did. I mean, part of it was the teacher issue. I mean, we've had oh. a situation here where they've actually had parents to come in and volunteer just to watch the kids. It's like Maybe. a babysitting class. Now, you can say your school's open. You're just yeah. politically making a statement. Uh, Minneapolis schools had 38% uh, of their teachers out infected today. Terrible. Wow, Terrible. amazing. I mean, that's where I find it hard. And that's where I push back hard against the administration and said, the president's got to stop saying we're going to keep schools open at all costs. Yeah. You know, nobody would say that if it was the hurricane Absolutely. or the right. real snow blizzard. Right. And, you know, this is short lived. This is not the next school year. Yeah. This is not yeah. the next. It's, you know, get us to February. And I think we're in yeah. a very different place. Well, Obviously, during this period of time uh, with the massive surge across the country, we're concerned about all people, but the most vulnerable patients in particular. And, and one group I know you've commented on are the immunocompromised patients. And you're saying they really need to get their fourth vaccine dose. Why is that so important for this group right now? Well, let's be really clear, because there's been some information come out in the last day suggesting fourth dose may not work. We already have a recommendation in this country based on data that already exists that supports a fourth dose for those who are Im immunosuppressed moderately or severely. That's about 7.2 million people in this country. So that one is not even up for discussion. Get that fourth dose. The data that came out uh, in the last day from Israel on the laboratory studies looking at the immune response in healthy people, people who are otherwise not immune suppressed, suggested that the level of protection from that fourth dose may not be sufficient benefit to warrant that it be used. However, the studies are still going on actually looking at clinical cases, much like we did with the third dose. So I think within the next month to two months, we're actually gonna have substantially more data on does the fourth dose really protect you in a way that three doses didn't. I mean, we need the facts, we need the best data, but we also have to face reality. And reality is, is that if that means we have to have a fourth dose, are we going to keep giving doses every six months to so many people in the world? It's not going to happen. And so I think we are going to come to a point where if, in fact, that fourth dose does appear to be necessary or can be helpful of asking ourselves, what is our model going forward? How are we going to do this? If we can't even get you know, four doses in people in the high and middle income countries, what is the chance we'll ever do anything like that in low and middle income countries? So I think right now, the bottom line message, if you're immunosuppressed, please get that fourth dose because it surely can have a benefit. You know, uh, you and, and Dr. Manu both served in the Biden transition team, and some have really called your writing a striking critique of the administration. We're about two weeks out since since the article appeared. I'm not sure if you've been invited to dinner at the White House, but tell us what the response has been and has anything changed in your own thinking? Yeah, it's one of those situations, Mark, where people have tried to make this as an adversarial situation. You know, we've had a second row seat in all of this being part of this team, not a front row, where basically you have to keep your eye on the ball 26 hours a day and even sleep with one eye open. So we've had the luxury of not having to do that. And so what we were attempting to do is actually in a very positive and collaborative way say, you know, you have to continue to deal with this firefight right now, but we have to figure out how we're going to deal with this in the future. You know, we can't keep going from these surge to surge to surge, crisis to crisis to crisis. And so what our efforts were was to help provide a framework for the administration to consider going forward. 
Um, they have been uh, very supportive of our efforts. We've shared all this information with them before it was ever published. Uh, I actually still do get invited to the meetings and the calls. We, none of us have gone to dinner yet. But the point being is it's, I think, been a very positive step forward because we have to figure this out. You know, what are we going to do? You know, I, I know no one wants to hear this, but, you know, as you know, a year ago, I was saying that I thought the darkest days of the pandemic could still be ahead of us based on the variants. Once I saw Alpha and Beta and Gamma, I said, wow, this virus has that potential to continue to throw 210 mile an hour curveballs, which, of course, Delta and Omicron did. Well, there's still that chance we're going to have another one that could be just like Omicron or worse, where it evades immune protection, where it either from vaccines or natural infection. And so what we wanted to do is set out an approach that says, well, we gotta be ready for something like that. But what if in fact that doesn't happen again? And we start to see this become part of the seasonal milieu of respiratory transmitted diseases. Remember, you know, influenza on a, an average year kills 50 to 70,000 Americans in this country. How does that fit in with COVID? And so our papers were really about looking and reaching forward with the idea that we need to learn to live with COVID. And that's what we have to start figuring out how to do. Well, speaking of learning things from COVID, if you spent any time in vaccine clinics or testing clinics over the last couple of years, one of the things you really got a sense of was we were making a vital service available to people, regardless of cost, regardless of insurance status, regardless of citizenship status. From your perch, is there a lesson in all of that about how to address other public health or preventive care concerns? Can we use this as a lesson to make things better in health and public health going forward? Well, I think to me, Margaret, the number one lesson that I think has been so important in this is that it's kind of like hosing your driveway uphill. You can go up and up and up one spot or you can keep going back and forth and back and forth. And that's what everyday public health is about is hosing your driveway uphill. And suddenly, if you get distracted into just one small section of it, everything runs back down. And when you look at from a global standpoint, and even in our own country, the kinds of negative implications that we've had because of a lack of diagnostic services, access to healthcare, uh, you know, even for cancer patients, surgeries that were postponed, we have seen a degradation of overall health in the world that is really remarkable. And what it really points out is we can't afford to focus on one six inch stretch of that driveway. And so if anything, what it's gonna call for is major new investments just to catch up again. I look at HIV, I look at malaria control, I look at childhood immunizations, I look at cancer screening. We have fallen way behind in all of those, which we're gonna be paying a price for, for years to come. We have to rebalance the public health and medical care balance sheets right now so that we can understand we have to do COVID. It's not an option, but you can't do it only in exclusion of all these other issues. So to me, I think that message rings really loud and clear that if nothing else, COVID has proven just how important these other programs are. You know, Margaret talked about uh, having a perch and you're perhaps the only public health official to serve in roles for President George W. Bush Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And, and, and tell us about the difference in the styles and approaches you've observed and, and how these play out in the healthcare arena. Well, you know, Mark, actually, I've had the fortune to uh, serve roles in the last five presidential administrations, including now this one. And, you know, I've always come in as just a private in the public health army. You know, it's not an ideologic issue. It's not a political issue. How can I help out? 
And, uh, you know, I had the good fortune you mentioned uh, George Bush. I served as a special advisor to Tommy Thompson, the secretary of HHS, for three years after 9-11, while also at the University of Minnesota. I was a science envoy to the for the State Department uh, during the Trump administration, which I actually traveled around the world talking about pandemic preparedness. And I think the one thing that I have to just continue to emphasize, there are some really incredibly dedicated, brilliant people in our governments that don't change their priorities just because political parties change in the White House. Good public health is good public health. And working with these people have been remarkable. I mean, I can tell you, I had a wonderful experience during the Trump administration work I did for the State Department. And now, you know, helping out with this administration. So I think we so often focus on that small group of elected officials overseeing these programs. But what we fail to sometimes remember is that just like with our military, that these soldiers are day in and day out without regard to political party. And that's what I'll always remember is the commitment and the uh, efforts that they were making to go forward. Well, that's a very important view to remind uh, people about. And and you have been one of those people sharing your expertise in so many areas. And, and one of them, you referenced influenza a little a while ago, and I want to just uh, go back to that for a second. Uh, you know, January, typically a very high uh, peak season for impact of influenza. We've had some reports of influenza uh, combined with Delta or Omicron to create an even more dire situation. What are you seeing around the country with this? Well, you know, right now, I think we're at a point of uh, it surely could get worse, but it may actually be leveling off and coming down. This is the H3N2 virus, for which, unfortunately, we have a relatively poor match with the vaccine this year. Uh, but we haven't seen the major increase in influenza, particularly in kids, uh, which in the past years has been an indicator of just widespread community transmission. So I think it's still too early to tell. I wouldn't want to write this season off as having... Uh, been mild or even best moderate in terms of occurrence. Influenza can change in a dime. But I think it also points out in this the fact that the older I get, I think the more vulnerable I am to learning. And one of the things you have to do with influenza is have a real sense of humility and learn because it can throw curveballs at you just like COVID's doing. And it is a very significant public health challenge. I mentioned earlier, 50 to 70,000 deaths a year. So uh, I'd say right now we're fortunate in that we're not seeing more of it. Could be an interaction with COVID and that reason why we didn't have any of it last year. But uh, I wouldn't want to count out that we're done with the flu season for this year yet. You know, since all the variants have Greek letters, it, it seems appropriate to uh, think a little bit about Greek mythology as Americans are looking for its scientists to be a little like the Oracle of Delphi. And you've been so <laughs> right in so many of these predictions about the virus. Where do you think we'll be by spring or summer or, or, or winter? And, and I hope you don't mind being referred to as the Oracle of Omicron. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to give you a very truthful answer that is correct. Okay, it's somewhere between little to nothing or it's really bad. And it's somewhere in between there. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is where, again, Mark, that humility comes in. We don't know. You know, all these statistical models that go out beyond four weeks, they're all based on pixie dust. You know, I see these organizations out there putting these out. And you can see in a moment by just looking back in November, December, January now, you know, who could have predicted this in October or early November? What I look at is 
you know, I, I hope for the best and I have to plan for the worst. And if it's less than that, then we will be in much better shape. And so I think that, you know, people don't want to hear this, but, you know, the idea of herd immunity, I let, went out the window for me over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And it's because we don't have sustained immunity with this virus. And it's not that unusual as well. We've seen it with other coronaviruses. You look at how many of the people right now are being reinfected with Omicron who have been vaccinated, have had boosters, or previously were infected with uh, a, a previous Delta variant. And so what it really points out is, is that we could have another variant in three or four months from now that could emerge that could easily evade the immune protection of what we have right now in our population could be just as transmissible or not. Maybe we won't see that. And I think, you know, right now the scientific community has to have that dose of humility and don't try to predict what we can't. And so I'll just say that right now we're not done with Omicron. Uh, we're surely not done with COVID yet. You know, we may as a population get done with this pandemic, but the virus isn't done with us. And knowing that that's why we have to learn how to live with it. You know, our group was very involved in overseeing the writing of and bringing the experts together to uh, come together with a plan on the influenza vaccine roadmap. It's on our website. This was an international effort with WHO, the major foundations, and it was a roadmap for how are we going to get better flu vaccines, the universal vaccine. Well, we're now embarking on a similar process for pan-coronavirus vaccines. And I do believe that in the next uh, a uh, few years, we're going to see vaccine 2.0, 3.0, maybe 4.0 that can provide us more durability, more uh, protection against a variety, of, a variety of variants. I think therapies are going to be huge. Imagine if we did this interview back in the early 1980s and we were talking about HIV. That was a death sentence then. Yeah. Look at it today. Where therapeutics are available, it is a manageable chronic disease. And I think the therapeutic contribution to reducing the impact on our communities is going to be huge. And what we need to do is get in place a global plan for rapid testing, identification of people infected, and the distribution of these new therapeutics. That could be like HIV in a way, even without a vaccine. If we add both vaccines, better vaccines and therapeutics. I think we can definitely hold COVID to a place in our communities where it's not scary, it's not interrupting everyday life. Dr. Osterholm leads the University of Minnesota Center for Infectious De Disease Research and Policy, which works to prevent illness and death from targeted infectious disease threats through research and the translation of scientific information into real world practical applications, policies, and solutions. Dr. Osterholm, we appreciate so much your returning to thank conversations you. on healthcare today for this important talk. And thanks for joining us on this edition of Conversations on Healthcare. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments January 7th in two challenges to the Biden administration's attempts to expand the use of vaccinations. In the first case, National Federation of Independent Business versus Department of Labor, Justice Sonia Sotomayor vastly overstated the number of children with COVID-19 who are in serious condition. 
quote, we have hospitals that are almost at full capacity with people severely ill on ventilators, she said. We have over 100,000 children in serious condition and many on ventilators. According to the latest data from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, there were about 4,700 children hospitalized in an inpatient pediatric facility on January 10th who had laboratory-confirmed or suspected COVID-19. That includes those in observation beds, HHS noted. As of early January, there has been a concerning surge in children hospitalized with COVID-19, particularly among the very young. The American Academy of Pediatrics wrote in a January 4th report that it was uncommon for children to have severe illness due to COVID-19, but more data was needed to assess the severity caused by new variants and the long-term impacts of the pandemic on kids. But Sotomayor's statistic on the number of children experiencing a serious condition was way off, assuming she was talking about hospitalizations, which the context of her comments suggests. The justice was correct that cases of children hospitalized with COVID-19 are at a record high. So is the number of infections. The American Academy of Pediatrics reported that weekly data ending January 6th showed the cases among U.S. children nearly tripling over the course of two weeks. The seven-day average of hospital admissions for those up to 17 years old was 830 children on January 8th. Of particular concern is the rise in the rate of cases among children ages four and younger who were admitted to hospitals and were infected with the coronavirus. Children that young are not yet eligible for COVID-19 vaccination. The Supreme Court sided with the business group, blocking a federal requirement for vaccinations or weekly testing at large employers in the U.S. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. People living in sub-Saharan Africa have tougher odds at overcoming diseases. And the problem is not just the lack of access to healthcare providers, access to vital life-saving medicine is out of reach for many who are sick. Africa has some of the highest drug prices in the world, simply because it's a free pricing market. So you can take a single medicine and two pharmacies next to each other will sell that same drug at widely different prices. Gregory Roxon is the founder of M Pharma, a nonprofit organization that's seeking to address inequities in drug prices in Africa and the supply chain that often puts these life-saving drugs out of reach. M Pharma operates in four African countries. It decided to tackle the problem by redirecting the supply chain that forces small independent pharmacies and clinics to source their own drugs. We realized that if we could begin to bring together all these independent pharmacies and remove the pressure that they have to face in sourcing their own drugs, we can begin to address the issue of medicine availability and affordability. Roxon says they help improve the drug procurement supply chain by collecting data on actual drug sales, which allows healthcare entities to avoid over or understocking, 
and it reduces their vulnerability to fraud and corruption. Not only are we taking ownership of the supply chain, we are also providing the financing to purchase the inventory. And we offer them a simple value proposition. Pay only when you dispense the drug to the patient. We actively help them manage their inventory. M Pharma was a 2019 recipient of the School Foundation's Entrepreneurship Award. M Pharma, a nonprofit entity that utilizes reliable data on drug usage, eliminates fraud and waste in the drug supply chains, makes life-saving medications more readily available to some of the world's most vulnerable people. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.